Hello, I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. This is the Dinner Party Download. My co-host Rico Galliano is on vacation on the very week we're broadcasting a special episode. Coincidence? You decide. So this week, like last week, we are taking a break from our regular programming to share something new with you. To get you up to speed, the powers that be have asked us to make our little radio show into an hour-long radio program. And frankly, I was originally opposed to the idea. Uh, But when they pointed out that our current show is akin to an, quote, audio cupcake, well, I kind of came around to their way of thinking. So we are interrupting our regular programming for a few weeks to experiment with some different segments that we might include in an hour, and we wanted to get your feedback. But here's a secret. We've already made an hour-long show. We were doing it while you weren't looking. It's true. We created an hour-long pilot, some of which we've played before in our podcast, other parts we haven't. So now we'd like to share that pilot with you and see what you think. Do you like it? Is it the greatest thing you've ever heard? Would you consider laying in front of your local program director's Volvo station wagon until they agree to play it at their local station? Your feedback is really valuable to us, especially since we get to filter out the bad stuff before our boss sees it. So please send your thoughts along. So without further ado, I present to you the Dinner Party Download hour-long pilot. Listen, enjoy, and then tell us what you think by going to our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. Welcome to the Dinner Party. This is your icebreaker. A duck walks into a bar, and he says to the bartender, Hey, bartender, you got any grapes? And the bartender says, No, I don't have any grapes. This is a bar. And the duck says, Okay. So he leaves the bar. He walks around the block. He comes back, and he says, Bartender, you got any grapes? The bartender says, No, I don't have any grapes. And the duck says, Okay. He leaves the bar. He walks around the block again. Hey, bartender, you got any grapes? The bartender says, Look, if you ask me that again, I'm going to nail you to the wall. The duck says, Okay. Leaves the bar, comes back. Hey, bartender, you got any nails? The bartender says, no. And the duck says, ah, you got any grapes? I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And from APM American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party, culture, food, and conversation for your weekend. You just got a joke from this year's Pulitzer Prize winner for fiction, Jennifer Egan. That'll help break the ice. I'm pretty sure she didn't write that one, though. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I think that's the one that got her the award, actually. Yeah. Uh, and coming up, actress Greta Gerwig, Poets on Strike, Dimitri Martin's Diet, Food Raves, and Etiquette with Broadway legend Elaine Stritch. Wow. But first, as at any dinner party, we begin with a little small talk. All week long, you've been hearing this. Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas has applied for full membership of the United Nations. Huge wildfires in central Texas. The Republican presidential candidates take the stage. For lesser-known stories to bring up at your dinner party, we asked some friends from around the country to tell us what they're talking about. Stacey Vanek-Smith, reporter at Public Radio's Marketplace. What's your story this weekend? Well, in my home state of Idaho, in the southeastern part of the state, the pelicans are eating a lot of fish, so they're trying to control the pelican population. So on this island where a lot of pelicans live, they've released badgers and skunks to eat the pelicans. So it's like these fish have recruited humans to use badgers and skunks to help them survive? Right. This is like an affront to Darwinism. Yeah, well, and it would make a very complicated car decal. Or a really cute parade. Sean Cole, reporter in Manhattan. What story are you going to be talking about at your dinner parties this weekend? Poets on strike. Yeah. (laughs) What does that mean? 
So a really prominent poet named Eileen Miles is suggesting that on May 1st, all poets refrain from writing poems, reading poems, taking part in anything poetical, and instead channel those energies into political action. Oh my God, the country will come to a standstill. I, it's going to be a real problem. Real strikes with actual workers don't work in this country anymore. <laughs> Did you not see what happened in Wisconsin? It's, poets are, I mean, they are workers. They don't make money. Or it's, you know, it is, it's difficult to see how it will affect anybody but poets themselves. Right, as if, if a tree falls in the forest and there's no one around to hear it. Did it write a pantoum, exactly. Madeline Brand, host of the Madeline Brand Show, appropriately enough. What story are you going to be talking about this weekend? Well, Brendan, I'm not going to be talking about anything momentous that happened in the far reaches of the Toroboras. I'm going to be talking about something a lot closer to home, and that is... Ready for it? I'm ready. Nordstrom, you know, the store Nordstrom. Wait, isn't that near Tora Bora? <laughs> it is. It's near Jamba Juice. Okay. And <laughs> it's getting rid of its piano players. They have in-store piano players. Oh, that is so sad. I know. Piano players are so classy. Why would they get rid of them? The stores are saying the customers aren't really into it. They want something a little more modern. I wonder what the ramifications are going to be for other industries, like the um, oversized brandy snifter industry. <laughs> <laughs> What are those people going to do? I don't know. What will they make instead? <laughs> and now, time for cocktails. This is the part of the show where we tell you something that happened in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's like history's a hot tub, but instead of water, it's filled with bubbling booze. Hmm. History is a, a hot toddy, apparently. That you bathe in. That you bathe in. <laughs> we begin by telling you the history 68 years ago this week. An event occurred which some hippie-type folks now call Bicycle Day. Now, the folks at your dinner party will probably think that Bicycle Day was an environmental initiative of some sort. Or something. But our friend Michelle Philippi is here to tell you why they're wrong. On April 19, 1943, Dr. Albert Hoffman took a bike trip. Emphasis on trip. Hoffman was a chemist at a Swiss lab called Sandoz. Five years earlier, he'd come up with the compound LSD-25. He hoped it would help people with circulatory problems. But he tested it on animals, and all it seemed to do was make them, quote, restless. So he chucked it. In 1943, though, Hoffman suddenly decided to whip up another batch. He accidentally got some on his skin and got pleasantly dizzy. Interesting. A few days later, he conducted a controlled experiment on himself. He swallowed a quarter milligram of LSD, the smallest amount he thought could have any effect. Hoffman started feeling really weird, and things got weirder on the bike ride home. He pedaled like crazy, but the bike didn't seem to move. The world curved at the edges like a funhouse mirror. By the time he got home, he thought he was possessed by demons. But as the drug wore off, everything seemed beautiful. I myself and also, of course, some uh, medical department uh, realized immediately that was a very important agent which could be useful in psychiatry and in research. It didn't work out that way. The CIA tried using LSD for mind control experiments. Baby boomers started using it to make jam bands sound good. And by 1970, it was outlawed even for medical use. Looking back on his discovery, Hoffman called it his problem child. So 
that was the history lesson. Now it's time for the booze. I'm here on Hate Street in San Francisco, arguably the center of the acid revolution, at a bar called Alembic. Daniel Hyatt is the bar manager here. So Daniel, you've heard the history. What drink are you inspired to make? Well, I figured we needed a couple of things to work with. One being that uh, the original discovery of LSD was made from uh, fungus. And so I thought we're gonna need to put a little fungus in there and we're gonna need to put a little acid in there. What kind of fungus do you put in cocktails? Uh, we're gonna use a little white truffle oil. And then we need some acid, so I'm gonna use a little drop of white balsamic. So I see you're avoiding the brown acid. I'm avoiding the brown acid, yeah. We're going with the, we're going with the white stuff. <laughs> now, the fun part here is we're gonna play with some color. We're gonna get some Campari in there. And we're gonna grab a little bit of cassis, a little absinthe. Yeah, I was gonna ask when the absinthe was gonna come in here. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it seemed to be a natural fit. It was yeah. built for it. And we're gonna try and get these to just layer real nice. All right, so we have the green absinthe on top of the black cassis and the red Campari. We got a little psychedelic cocktail going just as it is. <laughs> I know, it is pretty far out. We're just gonna pour in a little bit of, a little bit of sparkling wine. So we're like expanding the mind of this cocktail. <laughs> getting big we'll just give it a little flourish with the twist of lemon peel all right and it fizz when you drop that in there all right you want to try it yeah i'm gonna try it that's delicious let me check it out man that is really really good so what do you want to call it ah uh, boy let's just call it lsd 25 shall we <laughs> how long has this bar been here uh two and a half years and how long have you had the uh, melting mirror mural yeah it's we just i just put that in for you <laughs> it's freaking me out So, Brendan, great cocktail, Um, but do you remember the day that you recorded that interview? I do, and it's a miracle that I do, because uh, that day was April 20th, which is 4.20. Right. I started the interview around 4 o'clock, and it ended around 4.20. P.M. And the bar was on the Upper Haight, and for those not in the know, 4.20, 4.20, Upper Haight, they're all synonymous with marijuana use. Yeah, smoking. (laughs) A lot <laughs> at that exact moment. Yeah, and I happened to, and the bar happened to be next to a theater which was showing The Big Lebowski. <laughs> <laughs> so I stepped out into a sea of marijuana smoking people. And the contact high is just beginning to wear off. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, if you subtract 280 from 420, you will get the number of characters we're allowed in a Twitter tweet. And if you're able to do that, you weren't there. Follow us at Dinner Party DNLD. And now, the guest list, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. Hi, I'm Steve James, director of Hoop Dreams and The Interrupters, which is the new film. I'm going to tell you about films, if you don't usually go to documentaries, that could hook you into going to see documentaries, because they're that good. And these are not in order of preference. I think it's important to note. Number one, a movie called American Movie, the funniest documentary I've ever seen. And it's also got a very tender heart. It's about a guy in Milwaukee, been a struggling filmmaker for many years, and he's trying to make get his epic film done called Northwestern. And his sidekick is a really sweet, but usually completely drugged out guy. So that's what we're doing a film on. We gotta get the sucker done though, seriously. Last night, man, I was so drunk, I was calling Morocco, man, calling, trying to get to the Hotel Hilton at Tangiers in Casablanca, man. That's, I mean, that's, that's pathetic, man. Is that what you want to do with your life? Suck down peppermint schnapps and try to call Morocco at 2 in the morning? 
That's senseless, but that's what happens, man. So anyway, we're out here today to try to redeem it, get these establishing shots. You know, do what you can. You know, we're in America today, and we're ready to roll. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know what happened to him, but my my guess is is that he is uh, probably still working on Northwestern, and it's probably been about 15 years since that film was made. Number two, very different. It's called The Staircase, an incredible, like, six, seven-hour miniseries that follows a trial, a North Carolina murder trial, very much from the inside of the guy that's on trial. And it's riveting. You finish one episode, you want to watch the next one. And it's just this incredible uh, verite look at the way a trial really unfolds and the impact it has on the guy who's on trial for murder. She was just walking here. Uh, that's it. That was the last I saw Kathleen alive. No. She was alive when I found her, but barely. Durham 911, where's your emergency? Uh, 1810 Cedar Street, please. What's wrong? My wife had an accident. She's still breathing. What kind of accident? She's still on the stairs. She's still breathing. Please come. Is she conscious? What? Is she no. conscious? No, she's not conscious. Please, please. Last but not least is a film that is very obscure for most everyone in your audience called Inquiring Nuns. This is back in the mid-60s where the filmmakers went around with two nuns asking strangers on the street, are you happy? It was just such a great concept. The whole idea of a nun that you could open up to a nun, maybe unless you went to Catholic school, you know, but it, it was scored by Philip Glass when he was still, I think, a cabbie in Chicago. It's a beautiful little gem of a film. Good afternoon. Could I ask you a question? Are you happy? Well, I think if I've been some, some in another country, like uh, probably like Soviet Union, I'd be not, not happy, but uh, I am happy in, in the United States. What things in the United States make you happy? Oh, then that's democracy. I, I, I could do what I like here. It wouldn't work now. It would be too funny, and people would think, okay, where's, you know, am I being punked, or is this a reality show? I think now we're too media-conscious, savvy, cynical, whatever you want to say it. So it's a time capsule in a way, but, you know, what people have to say about happiness or unhappiness is timeless, I think. That's this week's guest list from documentary director Steve James. His new film, The Interrupters, hits theaters this summer. And Brendan, actually, I did some research about that nun movie. Okay. It sounded so interesting. It turns out the nuns in the film later asked themselves if they were happy. Oh, wow. And realized they weren't, so they're not nuns anymore. (laughs) That's a true story. So I guess some habits aren't hard to break. Oh my God. Uh, Couldn't resist. Ladies and gentlemen, we must take a quick break while I smack Brendan. Now you sound like a nun. (laughs) But stick around to hear comedian Dimitri Martin tell us about his diet. I was hyper vegan for almost a year. Then one afternoon I sort of freaked out and ended up eating an entire cow. I just tackled it and ate it. That and etiquette tips from Broadway legend Elaine Stritch when we return to the dinner party.
Welcome back to The Dinner Party, culture, food, and conversation for your weekend. Here's some food for thought. Well, I was just thinking, um, it is April, and uh, a couple days ago it was almost 90 degrees, and today it's raining and 50, and I like these lines from Robert Frost's poem, Two Tramps in Mud Time. I think I've got them right. It's something like, you know how it is with an April day, when the sun is out and the wind is still, you're one month on in the middle of May. But if you so much as dare to speak, a cloud comes over that sunlit arch and a wind comes off a frozen peak and you're two months back in the middle of March. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and we just overheard former U.S. Poet Laureate Billy Collins sharing a springtime poem. You can't beat that. You really can. And you know what? Billy Collins is the sort of poet, I think, who'd be well-behaved at a dinner party, you know? I, not, not like poets of your, like Rimbaud, Byron. Britney Spears. Spears. She's one of the greats. Anyway, yeah, those sorts of folks could use some etiquette tips. As could we. Precisely, which is why we turn to Broadway legend Elaine Stritch, best known for her performance in Stephen Sodheim's musical Company, and recently for her role as Jack Donahue's mother, Colleen, on NBC's 30 Rock. Elaine, thanks for joining us. Thank you for asking me to come here and uh, try to be adorable on your show. <laughs> it's already working. Yeah, you already succeeded. It's working? Oh, isn't that a, a delight? So I get my dollar and a half to go home, right? That's right. Sure do. That's Public right. radio money. <laughs> So look, our audience is teeming with questions about how to behave, and for some reason we're going to ask you to help them. All right. Our our first question comes from Lizzie in Washington, D.C. Lizzie says, people throw around the word ladylike a lot when they're talking about etiquette. What does it mean, and should I aspire to be it? Number one, I love the expression ladylike. I, it's very Cockney. It's like a lady, you know. It's <laughs> Well, the, the Cockneys they... would say bird-like, wouldn't they? I never heard such a thing as bird-like. Bird-like would mean to me small. Oh, I just meant she's a pretty bird. They refer to ladies as birds. No, she's a lady-like broad. She's not a perfect bird. I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) Who said anything about birds? Can one be a lady-like broad? Uh, That's the trick of the week. (laughs) If you can be a lady-like broad, that is perfection. No, I'm not kidding about this. And what was the question? So she wants to know whether she should aspire to be ladylike. Do you think that's a worthwhile goal in this day and age? If she can sneak a little broad in on the weekends. (laughs) You know what I mean? For instance, if a ladylike person says a line like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> she should be able to get away with that. Right. Her lady her like ladiness she, kind of over you know, kind of cuts the edge. Her lady likeness, not her ladiness. I like to call it lady likeness. <laughs> All right. Is uh, overpowering the uh, That's right. what the hell are you talking about? I mean, I can get away with that. <laughs> yes, you can. You just did. Yeah. This uh, broad that's getting married in England. The royal wedding. What's her name? Kate Middleton. Kate Middleton should be able to lean over the table with a martini and say, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> and still be a lady. I think she could get away with it. If she's got some guts, a lady should be able to get away with almost everything. Oh, man. I wish uh, Now I want to be ladylike. Uh, well, absolutely. My definition should make everybody want to be, you know? Well, let's get to a second question here. I think this is a rather interesting one. Good. This is Patrick from Santa Monica, California. Patrick mm-hmm. writes, I am a twin... I get asked all of the time whether or not I've pulled pranks, like by switching with my brother, for example. But 
My boring answer all the time is no. I'm on Patrick's side. I know exactly what he's talking about. If you were a twin, would you buy into that, playing practical jokes on other people? And here's what I have to say to Patrick. Yeah. Practical jokes are my most unfavorite thing about comedy. Really? Mm. Practical jokes to me are just about as funny as a guy at a party with a lampshade on his head <laughs> trying to get a laugh. That sounds pretty funny, it, though. This yeah, we is not, No, uh, the guy with the lampshade you think is funny? Are you sure. crazy? Well, the way you said it was pretty funny. Yeah. Well, that's a different matter. And is it because the practical joke, is it too mean? I think it can be. Yeah. It's like fraternities and sororities. What? I don't like them at all. All right. Well, we have, an, we have another question here uh, from Sarah from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Right. Say I'm at a dinner party and all the other guests are boring. Should I tell my host that's why I'm leaving? Oh, she assumes then that she's not, right? <laughs> yes. It's bad etiquette just asking this question. I know, but I love this woman. It always happens to her, apparently. Maybe she should. Apparently. Well, she's got a big problem. <laughs> Finish the question. So she, she asks, should I tell my host that's why I'm leaving early or fib? Oh, my God. <laughs> Everybody's boring, so that's her opinion. I'd like to meet the other people that were at the party. Yeah. And if she leaves because of the boredom, I'd suggest she have dinner first so it wasn't an entire waste (laughs) of time and try to fake it until maybe 10, 30, 11 o'clock and then go home and shut up. Yes. That's what I do. Carry on. Here's the last one. All right. And appropriately enough, it's about dinner parties. Oh! Daniel of Chicago, Illinois writes, I want to throw legendary dinner parties. What was the most memorable dinner party you ever attended and why? Mm. I'm looking forward to this. Um, I did a movie once with um, Tony Curtis and Janet Lee. Uh. They gave the um, dinner party and I had a blind date with guess who? Frank Sinatra. What? Yes. And he picked me up at the Beverly Hills Hotel. I changed my dress about seven times (laughs) before he got there. And he wasn't there. It was just the driver he sent. So I went to the party. By the time I'd gotten to the party, I had had about three martinis to get the nerve to go to the party in the first place. And I went into the library, and there's all these big stars sitting around on the floor watching Frank Sinatra on television, you know, doing his show. Now I had four martinis. (laughs) He finished, and in that little moment of silence, when he got to, that's why the lady is a tramp, I said, well, you can say what you want, but the son of a can sing. (laughs) Whereupon, Tony Curtis looks up and says, Frank, that's your date. (laughs) He took me into dinner, and... Well into the dinner, he said to me, so you're in the theater, eh? People in the theater ain't going no place. No. And I said to Frank Sinatra, who was right with me on the martinis. Surprise. And I said, really? Well, for a long time, Mr. Sinatra, I've been dying to meet you so I could ask you where the hell you think you're going. (laughs) He stood up and he said, get her out of here. Whoa. And I went to Hamburger Hamlet on Sunset (laughs) Boulevard with the driver and had dinner. Now, the point of this dinner party story, the best dinner I ever went to, 10, 11 years later, I walked into 21, the famous chic restaurant in New York, and Frank Sinatra was sitting at table number one, and uh, I was introduced, and Frank said, oh, you're the girl in the theater that ain't going no place. (laughs) 
And I said wow. to myself, well, he remembered me, didn't he? Nice. <laughs> I thought it was one of the best compliments I've ever had in my life. Well, Elaine, it is safe to say that we are going to remember you, too. Uh, thanks for your help. This has been fun. I can't say that about a lot of things that I do. And I just enjoyed the hell out of being here, if that's ladylike enough for you. It certainly is. Okay. Elaine Stritch, thanks for being here. And I hope I see both of you again. And now, Dinner Party Ruminations. This week, comedian Dimitri Martin on dietary restrictions. I used to eat meat. I ate fruits and vegetables too, and a lot of other things people handed to me. I guess you could say I was an omnivore. Like a lot of people, I didn't know any better. Then I read a couple of books. One of them was called Hot Dogs and Fingertips. I also read The Cow Feces Dilemma, as well as Barf, STDs, and Veal. These books and my girlfriend who made me read them really motivated me to become a vegetarian. I started out as a regular vegetarian, someone who does not eat meat. Then I became what is called a constipated vegetarian, someone who eats too many bananas. After that, I became what they call a strict vegetarian. That's someone who eats only fruits and vegetables that have been disciplined in some way. Like for example, corn that was grown in a perfect row, or grapes that were stomped by someone in uniform. Next, I decided to become a vegan, no animals or animal products. After that, I became a Las Vegan. The same thing as vegan, but living in Las Vegas. After that, I became what some call a hyper-vegan. No animal products or things that even look like animals, including animal crackers, gummy worms, those Easter peeps, asparagus that resembles a snake, a snake that resembles asparagus, etc. I was hyper-vegan for almost a year. Then, one afternoon, I sort of freaked out and ended up eating an entire cow. From what I can remember, I didn't cook or even kill the cow. I just tackled it and ate it. I'm not proud of that, but I feel I should mention it here in the interest of full disclosure. After the trial, a battery of shots, and several rounds of antibiotics, I decided to turn over a new leaf. I became raw, someone who only eats raw food. I added sushi to this a few weeks later, becoming raw plus sushi, which some say is redundant because sushi is raw. That's when I went from raw vegan to raw forager, when you only eat things that are raw that you find in the woods, like a leaf or another kind of leaf. Finally, last month I decided to go from raw forager to passive forager. Passive forager is when you lie down on the forest floor on your back and then open your mouth and eat only the things that fall into it. You're supposed to only eat the things that fall in that are also not alive. However, you can eat a living thing if it is attacking your mouth, which happens from time to time. And that works out pretty well if you need to get some protein or defend your face. Anyway, today I'm feeling pretty good. Definitely much better than I look. I guess you could say my diet has been a personal journey of sorts. Of course, none of this has been good for my breath. That was a dinner party rumination by comedian Dimitri Martin from his new book, This is a Book. Love that title. All right, we will pause for a minute. Yes. When we get back, Rico finds out what happens at a farmer's market when the sun goes down. Yeah, you could die. You could die right now. This is so punk rock right now. (laughs) And we meet the woman the New York Times calls the defining actress of her generation when we return to the dinner party.
Welcome back to the dinner party, culture, food, and conversation for your weekend. Here's some folksy wisdom. I have this song called Little Queenie. I wrote Guy Clark, and it was about my dog dying. But I always introduce this song by saying, To err is human, to forgive is canine. I am Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan, and that was Texas musician and artist Terry Allen. His play opens up in California later this month. Coming up, I speak with actress Greta Gerwig, but now it's time for the main course, the part of the show where we talk about food. So, Brendan, the other night I went up to San Francisco to go to this farmer's market. Farmer's market at night, huh? I know. That's not even the half of it, actually. Here's some tape of the scene outside. How long have you been waiting in line? One hour. Seriously? Totally serious. Did you expect this line? No, I thought I was going to eat right away. (laughs) That has not happened. No, it's not happening. I'm still hungry. (laughs) I was expecting a little bit of a line, but not... A block and a half. <laughs> Man, it sounds like food palooza out there. I picture Perry Farrell in a chef hat. Well, that's not far from the truth. It is. This is a monthly event. It's called the Underground Market. Okay. Thousands of people show up and pay $8 to enter, and it's kind of like a food rave, as I found when I went inside. So we're standing on the top floor of Public Works, which is a, a dual-level club in uh, San Francisco. It is 11 p.m., and I'm eating waffles made by... Savan Walensky. This is called the underground market. What makes it underground? Well, what makes it underground is uh, in order to sell food to the public, you need to make it in a, an inspected facility. Uh, there's a lot of hurdles to work in a, an inspected plant, and a lot of people don't have uh, the resources. So this is geared towards people in the food industry that don't have a facility. Most of whom are making this stuff, you know, at home in their kitchens or something. Yeah. I'm Laura Miller, and my business is Side Saddle Kitchen. I do raw vegan desserts. Basically, I can't afford a commercial kitchen right now. I'm hoping to in the future, and this market is helping me to get there. Now, tell me, why is it that you can do this legally, but you can't get into a farmer's market? It's because it's private. People sign off so that they can get in because uh, it's not health code certified. People meaning the, the people that are coming in. By buying a ticket, they're saying, like, I risk getting salmonella and dying. Yeah, you could die. You could die right now. This is so punk rock right now. (laughs) Sick, bro. A lot of this stuff is homemade, but that doesn't mean it's simple. I'm watching a gentleman sell... What you making here? Making duck kong fee stuffed gnocchi with uh, wild black cherry brown butter sauce. And there's also a guy selling about a million extremely complex-looking flavors of homemade bread pudding while a swing band plays downstairs. People do like our salted caramel. I really have to say, the Earl Grey knocks people's socks off. Three flavors? For $3, you can do a flight for three. Okay, cherry, margarita, and peanut butter. Okay, so with the peanut butter, I'm gonna add the caramel sauce for you. With the cherry soda jerk, do you want me to add whipped topping? It's a French vanilla. Do it all. I've been doing this market for about a year, and it's really been amazing. It, apparently the word is out. Yeah. It's not like people don't know about this. It's super underground anymore. <laughs> Might have to change the name. Yeah. I've stepped out of the Maelstrom inside, out here on the sidewalk, to speak to the organizer of this event, Iso Rabins. Iso, hi. Hello. So the underground market started off very small. How did it get to become this huge club event? Yeah, so at that point it was like seven vendors, maybe 150 people showed up. It was someone's house. 
But even at that point, someone called the health department on us. And ironically, I think the health department showing up to the first one is the reason that there are this many people here tonight. Like um, Suddenly it was anarchy. No, it was. The first one, so like 150 people showed up. And I wrote a blog post about like, oh, the health department showed up and this and this and this happened. And the second one, like 1,000 people showed up too. Now this is the thing. So there's like this element of rock and roll anarchic danger is part of what's drawing people to this thing. And yet I'm assuming that the goal is to get people to be able to launch legitimate businesses out of this. Is there a dichotomy there? I mean, exactly. The kind of end goal is to help people launch their own businesses. And I think that 10% of these people are here because they want to be in the market. You know, and that's kind of the point. But then there's also like 25% of the people here because it's like this is the place to be regardless of what's going on and food happens to be it. And I think it's great though. I mean, like of all the things that could be like cool that people would want to wait a long time in line for, waiting in line for two hours because you want to buy a banh mi sandwich that supports this girl who loves that what she does for a living is make banh mi sandwiches and like wants to be, just be doing things they're passionate about. I think it's really great. Man, punk rock rebellion looks totally different than it used to back in my day. Yeah. It's like instead of piercing your face, you buy barely legal gnocchi. Or something. <laughs> barely legal gnocchi. I think I've seen that on late night food TV, actually. I don't doubt it. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, for a more wholesome family fare, check out our website. It is dinnerpartydownload.org. Our guest of honor this week is actor Greta Gerwig. She has made her name in indie films, but this weekend appears alongside Russell Brand and Helen Mirren in the big Hollywood remake of Arthur. Here's a clip. I'm sorry. Who are you people? I'm his nanny. Well, I have to get back to our confused family over there, so have a nice day. Oh, hang on. Uh, excuse me. Naomi Quinn, I'd like to see you again. I don't date boys who have nannies. Very wise choice. So, Greta, you were just at the premiere party for that last night, right? Yes. Well, I like the film, but I have an important question about something else. Mm-hmm. Is it true that you have cats named Paul Newman and Diane Kitten? Yes, it is true. Pa and Diane are my cats. My roommates and I love puns and mm-hmm. cats and older movie stars. So it has to be movie stars, because I was thinking maybe like Woody Meowen would be a nice companion. Woody Meowlin. Oh, man, yeah. that's a good one. Yeah. We should have done that. Well, if you get another cat, you can have that. Well, but then we'll be like the house with three cats, which is bordering on weird. Well, it would be weirder if you didn't have roommates at three right. cats. Right, that's um, true. Are you a fan of Diane Keaton? Oh, I, uh, yes, obsessively so. I, I love Diane Keaton. Diane Keaton wasn't this kind of mainstream glamour puss, mm-hmm. pun intended, for Diane Kitten. Right. You know, like she had a different look and a kind of different approach to things, and that's similar to you. That's true. I've never actively attempted to make choices that I think she would have made had she been alive. I mean, or uh, not alive. She, Of course she's alive. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, that's another trait no. you share. You're going to damage your street cred here. It's, it's destroyed. I'd like to point out, it was a very raucous night last night. <laughs> Fair enough. So we're talking about Diane Q. Uh, yes. She's got a certain whimsical quality as well. I don't know exactly what the combination is, but I, I was raised in Northern California, mm-hmm. and I moved to New York when I was 18 for college. And I think that Northern California is big on whimsy, which is very unlike New York. So I think I relate to the dual qualities of being a New Yorker, but also being kind of a big softy. Hmm, that's interesting. You hail from Sacramento, 
And Joan Didion is another daughter of Sacramento who moved to New York. Oh, don't I know it. I've read everything she's ever written. Whimsy isn't something I think about when I think about Joan Didion. No, Joan Didion is not whimsical. (laughs) Joan, uh, she had a line in one of her essays where she says something like, I got off the plane in New York in a dress that had looked very smart in Sacramento and now suddenly did not look as smart. And I think about that line all the time because that's constantly how I feel. You kind of came into prominence through your work on like micro-budget indie films. And now you've recently crossed into kind of more mainstream films. Does that analogy work for that, how you're crossing into that world? Yes, yes, it's analogous, the switching of between worlds. And do you feel like you have the right dress on? I thought I wore the right dress last night, actually, <laughs> for the first time almost ever doing this stuff. And, and, I, and I, I felt very smart. Well, that's good to hear. I'm sure you looked smart. So you have this hometown paper called the New York Times. Yes. And uh, in it, yep, here it comes. They called you the defining actress of your generation. What's that about? It's crazy. Um, I couldn't read it because it <laughs> was completely overwhelming, but I'm, I'm hugely flattered that A.O. Scott thought that much about anything I've done because I'm such a huge fan of his as a as a critic and as a writer. I th- I would have been flattered had he written. I mean, I would have been upset, but also secretly flattered had he written it, a long article about how I was dreadful. <laughs> I I think there's something to this. You're one of the few actors that I see on the screen that actually talks and behaves like a human being that I've encountered in my life. Why don't more people do that? I I don't know. I I think um I mean my acting idols are like that. I mean. As we talked about, um, Diane Keaton, rest in peace. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, she's still alive. I've heard. I'm so embarrassed. Um, like my my favorite actor of all time is Gene Hackman, and uh-huh. there's something about him. It feels really alive. It never really feels to me like he's giving a performance in any way. Mm-hmm. His rhythms are his own, and I truly admire him. And I le- I like that kind of acting. And you, know, you sound like. You're a student of movies, yet you didn't study film at college. Uh, at Bernard, you studied English and philosophy, and you graduated magna cum laude. Is that right? Yes, I was. I was magna cum laude. I was very annoyed that I was not summa cum laude. But um, wait, wait, isn't what? Forgive me for as someone who wasn't either. Um, isn't magna mm-hmm. bigger than summa? No, no? summa is the biggest. Oh my god! Um, so I missed out. No, I'm going to get kicked was... out of public radio for not knowing that. I know. Why don't you know that? Well, I. Wasn't I was doing other stuff in college. Well, when you edit this together, make sure you put your mistakes in, too, so that we're even. All right, <laughs> so I'll... you don't just come <laughs> off as a super erudite, and I come off as a girl who stumbled out of a bar. Of course. So um, we have two standard questions that we ask everyone on our show. Okay. And the first question is, yes. what question are you tired of being asked in interviews? Uh, what's the deal with mumblecore? <laughs> <laughs> and mumblecore, for people who don't know, is a way that critics used to describe some of your early films, which were had 20-something kids who didn't talk very clearly. Right. Are you still awake? Mm. Are you awake? Yeah, I'm awake. Do you think I should break up with him or stay together? I don't know. It's your decision. I don't want to make it. Can you make it for me? Mm-mm. Um, anything, anything mumblecore. It, it, it's become meaningless to me. It's, it's like when you say a word over and over again and, you, and then it just seems ridiculous. Yeah. Like if you say refrigerator 50 (laughs) times in a row, you hear the sounds but not the meaning. Yeah. It's like that. Okay, so our second question is, tell us something we don't know either uh, about you or the world at large. Did you know 
that only men can be colorblind? I didn't know that. Is that true or is that... Yeah, that's true. Has that ever manifest in your life? No, but I have da- I've dated two colorblind men. Did they know that you were Caucasian? Yes, yes. It's not like um, in vogue, Free Your Mind. You know that song? No. No, it's like, Free Your Mind. Rico, if you can stop dancing for a second. Yeah. Uh, it turns out that women can be colorblind. But it's very rare. One out of 10 men are colorblind. And with women, it's more like one out of every 200. Interesting. Yeah. On a related note, I do not know why Hollywood keeps making black and white films. True. Like Arthur, I think, could have benefited from color. Exactly. I said the same thing about Avatar. Yeah. You're totally right. That's the dinner party for this week. Thanks to Jackson Musker and Charlton Thorpe for helping us set the table. Thanks also to Ellen Gettler, Peter Clowney, and Judy McAlpin. And now we leave you with One for the Road, a song to listen to on your way to or returning from your dinner parties this weekend. This time it's a new one from the band Fleet Foxes. Their debut is one of the best-received albums of 2009. They're back with their follow-up. It's called Helplessness Blues, and this is the title track. Bon appétit. I was raised Believing I was somehow unique Like a snowflake Distinct among snowflakes Unique in each way you can see And now after some thinking I'd say I'd rather be A functioning cog in some great machinery Serving something beyond me But I
table. 